You are tuned into the Dr. Tina Show with Dr. Tina Moore. For more, visit drtina.com. On this episode of the Dr. Tina Show, it is my pleasure to bring you my good friend and colleague, Dr. Lauren Latanza. Dr. Latanza is not only a naturopathic physician, but she also specializes in integrative cardiology at the Wolfson Integrative Cardiology Clinic in Scottsdale, Arizona. Today, we are talking all things heart health with a particular slant on COVID and the vaccines. COVID at its core really is a vascular disease. That's what we're seeing in the literature. That's what we're seeing globally. That's what my colleagues who are treating it are seeing. The sequelae or long symptoms of COVID are those of the cardiovascular system. And the cardiovascular system is intimately tied to your metabolic health, which you hear me go on and on about. In this episode, we sit down and talk about how your metabolic health drives your cardiometabolic health which is definitely impacting outcomes with COVID, both short-term and long-term. Let's jump in. Dr. Lauren Latanza, I am so happy to have you here today on the Dr. Tina Show. You are my go-to for naturopathic cardiology expertise, and I'm so honored to have you here today. Can you introduce yourself and tell the audience a bit about yourself? Absolutely. I'm so, so happy to be here with you. Um, yeah, so I'm a naturopathic doctor. I do work. I specialize in cardiology. So I'm a natural heart doctor. I'm in Scottsdale, Arizona, but you know, with the advent of telemedicine, you know, I see people in person and then all across really anymore the globe, but, um, kind of, uh, focusing more on cardiovascular illness. And we know over the last few years that that encompasses a lot more than just heart. So anything cardiovascular um, minded is certainly my focus. And, um, you know, prevention is the best cure. But uh, that's, we just have to take a deeper dive and look at what's really going on underlying all of cardiovascular inflammation, oxidation. And um, that's kind of my specialty. and yeah, ple- pleasure to be here and speaking with you about, um, I think I think we should kind of touch on maybe some myocarditis, things that we've seen in the last couple of years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's specifically what got me to reach out to you is I wanted to talk about myocarditis and give the audience a better understanding of what was going on in relationship to COVID and the vaccinations. But as we both know as naturopathic physicians, and uh, partners in crime in this root cause world that it goes much deeper into the endothelium. So I'm sure we'll have a good time talking about all the things. You are as smart as you are beautiful. So for everyone listening, listen up because this is the tea. This is the information that you guys have been asking for and nobody knows it better than Dr. Latanza. So let's start with what is myocarditis? It's this vague term that gets thrown around on the interwebs and now starting to make its way onto mainstream media and being dismissed as mild. Can you talk on that, please? Certainly. And it's this large spectrum of, you know, presenting symptoms, but what it really is, is an infection of the cardiac myocytes and the lining of the heart. Um, So really patients can get myocarditis from direct viral injury. Viral is typically the most offending etiology in myocarditis. So that can be Epstein-Barr virus, that can be parvovirus, that can be coronavirus. So it can be any, but viral is the number one etiology of myocarditis as it stands. Um, And then it's just an infection or an inflammation of the cardiac myocytes that will then present as palpitations, chest pain, shortness of breath, um, I'm, you name it, if it's, you know, just pain and it's kind of like, I just feel a little bit off. So it, patients present with any number of different things, but that can, 
then lead to, you know, arrhythmias. So I've got a lot of AFib patients. Um, then we look at their echo and they've got this um, abnormality in the structure of their heart muscle anymore. So it's become hypertrophic because of the myocarditis. Um, you can have accumulation of fluid. So you get edema from the um, myocarditis. So any number of presenting symptoms, but really it's a, an infection of uh, the cardiac muscle. Yes. So an inflammation and infection of the heart muscles, which it's big muscle, uh, due to infectious processes or other, and which can cause break down some of those technical terms for the audience. So edema is swelling. Correct. So yeah, so you get some swelling. So just you, you think of the immune system and how it responds in general, right? So you get swelling and redness and heat and, and fever. So swelling, redness, heat, um, aggravation in terms of like uh, just the swelling, the inflammation. So all of these things that your immune system is trying to do better, but it presents with a lot of uncomfortable symptoms. So because of the swelling and the inflammation and all of these things, that's where you can get some um, changes in the electrical conduction of the heart. So you get these arrhythmias. So rather than, you know, just a standard love dub, love dub, you get some abnormal, um, abnormal beats in the heart. And that's where you can kind of feel like your heart's racing or you feel like you skip a beat. So you get an, uh, an irregular EKG should you present when you're having an irregular EKG, that doesn't always uh, seem to be the case when you just happen to be strapped up to a, an EKG um, when you're having palpitations. Um, but that can be uh, certainly a, a presenting factor. And I've had, you know, over the course of COVID now, I had a number of patients come in and say, you know, I feel like I'm not breathing right. I feel like my heart's beating out of my chest when I wake up. I feel like, you know, just this chest pain. Am I having a heart attack? So it's scary when you have your heart and especially in it's young, vibrant patients. It's not, you know, just somebody that's kind of at the end of the road have had congestive heart failure for, you know, 20 years. It's young, vibrant patients that come in and it's like, yeah, I had, I had COVID or I got the vaccine or I got this. And suddenly I've got these issues that are bringing me into a cardiology office. Right, right. Let, can you mention how the pericardium plays into this? So the pericardium being the outer sac of the heart for the audience, how does this play into that with the edema happening? So you've got this sac, it's kind of like a water balloon around your heart. And if there's, and there's supposed to be like this kind of um, small layer where it's just a little bit of fluid around it, but you can imagine if there's any amount of swelling, then that small layer gets encringed upon, right? So there, it's going to be rubbing against that pericardial sac. So the water balloon is now being touched by the heart muscle. So that can be very aggravating, even though it's, you know, just maybe a little bit of, um, a little bit of touch between the muscle and the pericardial sac that is very, very aggravating and very, um, irritating to the patient and feels like very constricted, um, very painful, um, and can definitely contribute to significant symptom pictures. Yeah. I always think of it as like. A, an inflamed boggy heart muscle with fluid around it beating against the tough leather sack with no give. When you hear that with a stethoscope, it sounds like a water balloon, just like, so what should be like normal again, love dub, love dub. It's just aggravated and sounds not right. Yeah. 
before we move on to questions about the vaccine, because I, I do want to go there. What can you so we naturopathically know a few things about exercising when we have viral infections because of the risk on our cardiovascular system. Can you speak to that, please? So I yeah, and I would say, you know, kind of just listening to your body. So again, it depends on the patient. So we have to, of course, as you know, in naturopathic medicine, each individual case and each individual patient. But when you are, you know, feeling these symptoms of inflamed heart, you kind of want to just kind of scale it back, rest and digest a little bit. But I always think about um, making sure that you're providing enough nitric oxide, which we'll get in, we'll get into that with the endothelium, of course. But if you're not supplying your heart with enough nourishment and your heart is already inflamed, you don't want to overwork it and overdo it when, you know, when you're sick and you're combating an infection, specifically, you know, a, a systemic infection, like any viral illness. But then when you have a localized infection within that heart muscle, um, you definitely kind of want to take it easy, scale it back. Um, and I would say just do a little bit more of the rest and digest uh, type nourishment for the body. Yeah, because I remember early on in this pandemic when everybody was, they were, you know, they were trying to scare us with all of the things before the vaccine even came out. It was like each week there was a new symptom to scare us with. And everybody I remember for a time was going on and on and on about the cardiovascular complications of COVID, which are real. I'm not discounting them by any means, but it's like, duh, we've known this forever. Like you just, you, you know, and, and I remember talking to another ND and she was we were referring to a, a news article that had come out about the risks of exercise in COVID times, you know, like they were trying to scare us out of exercising is my point, which is the opposite. As we know, exercise is very protective. And I was just like, we know this, right? Like you're not supposed to engage in vigorous exercise when you have a virus because it can jack up your endothelium and your cardiovascular system. And like all of these things we knew about viruses already being sort of sensationalized, during COVID and, and some of these other things, that's really what just has baffled me is the, the fear factory around it. Absolutely. Well, and of course, having, you know, working in cardiology, a lot of the patients that I have, you know, again, with AFib, with congestive heart failure, with high blood pressure, they were really, really freaked out for good reason. But, you know, having this preventative mindset about things really kind of sets you up a whole lot better because we're not thinking about, shoot, you know, I'm backtracking all of my, my, my blood sugar, my insulin response. I've got chronic inflammation and oxidation. So if we're forward thinking and we know all of that and, you know, the, the standard American, maybe they're smoking, maybe they're getting a lot of oxidation from seed oils and just garbage food, then they're certainly at a higher risk for, you know, having, because if having oxidation in the body as a whole because of the damage that's already been done to the endothelium. And so their protection is just at a very bar, bar none. Yeah. 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 It, because I think at its core COVID is a cardiovascular disease, right? I mean, isn't that how it's sort of adding up to be? Yeah. I, I, and I think I mentioned this to you. I really think of it as like, so we have the cardiovascular system. And then beyond that, if we look a little bit deeper, really looking at the endothelium, so the endothelial glycocalyx. So if that's trash, then your cardiovascular wellness is trash and you can't circulate things properly. Then you're going to have, you know, we all hear about leaky gut, but it's leaky heart and leaky brain and everything just kind of gets set up for disaster when we don't have an intact, intact endothelial glycocalyx 
setting us up for, you know, good prevention with, within that microvasculature. So the tiny little blood vessels that really we, uh, we have to protect. Tell the audience what this endothelial glycocalyx is. So I like to think of it as like, so if you kind of think about the cross-section of a blood vessel, so you've got this um, circle, the lumen is the inside of the blood vessel. And then surrounding the inside of that lumen is what should be kind of like this nice, dense forest. And that forest is like the protective layer of the inside lining of your blood vessels. So when the, when the forest is intact, it's producing nitric oxide. It's providing an anti-stick layer for the inside lining of your blood vessels with oxidation and inflammation. And, you know, prolong, if you're, again, if you're a smoker, if you're obese, if you're all of these risk factors that are high risk factors for not doing well with COVID. So again, obesity, smoking, diabetes, high blood pressure, anything that's a sheer force directly affecting this forest, it's going to look like a forest fire brushed through there. And you're not going to have this protective layer anymore. So then anything that's going through that bloodstream, viral particles, spike proteins, it's going to come in direct contact with those, that fragile one layer, one cell layer thick endothelial membrane. That's where you get, I mean, we have the ACE2 um, receptor sites on those endothelial linings, and that's where we get route of infection from COVID. Yeah. So if we're not protecting that endothelial, that if we're not supporting that forest, then everything's just directly in contact um, with that very fragile endothelial layer. So again, my, you know, AFib patients, my high blood pressure patients, they were all really handled COVID very well because we had been thinking about this prior. Yes. You were doing preventative medicine, getting them out of that mess in the first place. So this, this layer of protection is obliterated by the inflammation that the obese diabetic persons walking, you know, metabolically unsound persons walking around on. And my audience probably rolls their eyes every time I mention metabolic health, because it's literally the root cause of all the root causes, in my opinion, right? <laughs> and, and then this endothelial layer is so thin and, and vulnerable. And then isn't it, and I, this is a really kind of gross description, you probably could do it more justice it gets inflamed and things start sticking. And as things start sticking, it, it's basically like forming a scab and things get much messier. And this is when we end up with clots and blockages, et cetera. Am I describing this? It, pretty much. Yeah. I mean, like I said, it's, it should be like this forest of sugars and proteins. So there's all these polysaccharides and proteoglycans and this again, lush kind of dense forest that's producing things that are necessary for the bloodstream and necessary as kind of like you know, I want to say Teflon, but we know that Teflon is like really poisonous and bad, but essentially that nonstick barrier. So if you don't have that intact, then yes, you get these, you know, oxidized LDL particles and small dense LDL particles and all of these things that allow um, the adherence to the inside lining of the blood vessels. And that's where you do get these plaques. And the more vulnerable they are, the more likely we are to throw a clot or, you know, have a stroke or a heart attack. So if we we're thinking about, you know, the long game of all of this, we're ahead of the clot. We're ahead of all of this because we're thinking about keeping that forest intact and having those nice sugars and proteins all doing what they need to do and producing nitric oxide and allowing the vasodilation. Um, so yeah, it's a very, you know, it's a grand scheme coming from a very, very minute uh, physiological function. 
I love that. Well, you would be interested to know that the inside of your joints is very similar. And it's a proteoglycan layer. It's That's your cartilage, right? That's a healthy cartilage layer that helps absorb water and keep shock and slick and all of that. So when that goes, that's when joints start. Slick coating, right? Yeah, I was just talking to Sean Baker on my last episode, who was an orthopedic surgeon for two decades, I recently learned. And he was saying that the inside of a young person's joint looks like snow, and it's beautiful. But then when you get into an older person's joint, who's got a lot of metabolic health issues, it looks like this, a smoker's lungs, it's all dark. And, and it's, it's the, uh, you know, it's, it's basically like the caramelization of the cartilage, just like the inside of your blood vessels, like they oxidize and caramelize with these sugars and the virus itself, I just learned the virus. I knew this. I knew one of the main way. So the way that the virus sticks to the ACE2 receptor is through sugars. And so the virus itself is coated like 40% in sugars and glycans. So I'm sure that has something to do with these high, high levels of ACE2 receptors inside the vessels. And then we've got these compromised systems because everybody's walking around with such poor metabolic health. It's really lock and key, you know? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, if you're, if you're thinking about the overall kind of progression from be it the inside of a joint space, the inside of a blood vessel, it's all really, you can bring it down to, like you said, oxidation and inflammation. So if we're kind of just doing, you know, day in and day out, these lifestyle factors, then that's our, our best insurance policy against this oxidation. Cause that's, that's what I tell patients all the time. Right. So when we're reviewing some of these labs and I'm looking at like, um, some of these oxidative stress profiles. So like the F2 isoprostanes and, um, LPPLA2 and oxidized LDL, especially looking at oxidized LDL. It's like, you can consider this like a rusty cholesterol molecule and things that are rusty are corrosive and damaging and prone to be brittle. And we don't want that. We want the, like you said, nice snowy and buoyant and kind of fluffy, and slick, <laughs> just like the inside of a joint. <laughs> it's all the same thing. I, the reason I love you is because we met at a conference not too long ago, and we like became BFFs right away. And it's so funny, because when you meet other healthy, vibrant uh, doctors, generally NDs, not all NDs are the same. And when we when I meet other healthy, vibrant ones, with a lot of vitality, like it was just like, spot on, like we eat the same, we both lift weights, we live the same, we have the same ideas about I mean, it's just like, we could play ping pong all day. Yeah. <laughs> or no, you yeah. know, and it's no, so we don't want to do that. <laughs> it's so weird, because there's other times, especially in the Pacific Northwest, when I get around the, some of the NDs up here, and I'm just like, uh, we are not the same. Like I, they think I'm an alien, but I know that I have kindred friends in exactly and in yeah, Arizona. We, we talked about this. We're kind of a split breed anymore, but you and I are definitely kindred spirits. Yes, for sure. So speaking of nutrition, what is your favorite way to eat? Because I want to hear this coming from a cardiology expert. I think a paleo approach is certainly best. So avoiding processed foods, avoiding specifically, you know, gluten and other grains, because we're, I'm really big on, you know, mold and other toxins. When we look at the cardiovascular system, again, bringing it back to oxidation, like I sound like a broken record, but if we're allowing toxins in through our diet and our environment, we're undoing everything that we're trying to work. You know, we're working an uphill battle. If we're allowing, you know, mold in through our food, if we're allowing oxidized seed oils in through our food, um, 
so I kind of give my patients the breakdown of, you know, a true paleo diet. So in its essence of, you know, grain free, um, wild caught grass fed pasture raised. So lots of, you know, pasture raised eggs, pasture raised, um, or grass fed beef and organ meats as much as possible. Not everybody wants a slab of grass fed beef liver on their plate, but if we can get some capsules or something, you know, there are some quality uh, supplements to that. Um, but really, you know, whole foods, if you can look at it, tell what it is, then that's, I think the best approach to a, a diet. I agree. And why avoid the grains? mostly in my opinion for mold and for some of these like serpentins, glutens, you know, some of these, um, kind of inflammatory proteins that are, um, just in grains as it is. And then of course, because of the mold content. So I kind of tell patients, like, if you think about like the bulk food bin in grocery stores, it's like a prime greeting Brown greeting Brown. What am I trying to say here for, um, for molds. So you just kind of are consuming molds. And again, you're kind of just contributing to that uphill battle. And then also we have to think about gastrointestinal health and, you know, preventing leaky gut. So of course, you know, we know gluten is a direct problem for, um, for the GI tract and the lining of the GI tract, but also, so are, like I said, the serpentins, the purinins, farinins, all of these other protein components of grains um, and they're just so heavily sprayed. So you get glyphosate, you get inflammatory proteins. So all in all, I think we're better off without grains in the diet. So, um, I definitely I'm in the camp of a low carb paleo approach to diet. I agree. grains are just super inflammatory for most people. And because I specialized in pain, which again, you know, you go to the conferences where they dive deep into neurology or neuroinflammation or cardiology or, you know, joint and musculoskeletal health. And like at the end of the day, all the treatment plans are very similar because it's all inflammation being driven most notably in the US but and probably the world by metabolic syndrome. This episode of the Dr. Tina Show is brought to you by my personal line of products that you can find inside my store. If you're like me, you're tired of taking so many pills, especially when it comes to fish oil that often needs higher dosing to impact inflammation levels, and then you have to deal with the fishy burps. Not with my omega-3 fish oil, Ultra Mega OK. Ultra Mega OK features natural, enzymatically enhanced, maximal monoglyceride fish oil that has three times greater EPA and DHA absorption rate than to an equivalent dose of ethyl ester fish oil. Studies show that the starting dose for anti-inflammatory benefits for fish oil are around 3,000 milligrams a day, which can often mean taking three to six capsules a day or more of the competitor's fish oil. That same benefit can be obtained with one capsule of Ultra Omega OK due to its advanced absorption technology. Some other benefits of fish oil have been shown in studies to support cardiovascular health, support healthy mental function, support healthy glucose and insulin metabolism, and more. Ultra Omega OK formulas are made using proprietary maximal compositions containing monoglyceride, FO, with no additional ingredients, carriers, or excipients. Each fish gelatin soft gel is enteric coated, which means little to no fishy burps, and every batch of fish oil ensures the world's highest standards for purity, potency, and freshness. This fish oil is non-GMO, certified sustainable from a variety of small fish in Scandinavia, and antibiotic-free. Additionally, it's eco-friendly because the greater absorption of EPA and DHA ultimately means that fewer grams of fish oil are needed to be harvested for the same benefit. 
While I can't make any specific health claims, tell you how to dose it, or make individual recommendations, I can tell you how these products work. As always, check with your provider before beginning any supplement regimen. Listeners of the show can enjoy 10% off Ultra Omega OK by using the code Ultra Omega 10 in all capital letters over at my store. That's store.drtina.com. Again, that's store.drtina.com, D-R-T-Y-N-A. And yes, I did name it after a Soundgarden album for you diehard fans. You know who you are. I use this product every evening before bed, and it significantly improves my mood, outlook, and levels of discomfort. Again, head to store.drtina.com and use code ultraomegaok 10 all one word, for 10% off. Would you say that, so, you know, that... The number one cause of death in the U.S., what it tripled the the amount of who died from COVID was cardiovascular disease up. I mean, same for 2020, but also up. It was up significantly in the past year because of, I'm sure, lockdowns and the, what we've done to the world. But the driving force behind these, what was it, like 690,000 people died or something? Yeah, it was an increase by like over 100,000. So at the very least. So already the number one killer worldwide is cardiovascular disease. And then we increase that during a global pandemic. So that it's even, it's become even worse than it already was, which was incredibly bad. Um, so if we're not paying attention to this now, I really don't know when we will. What is the root cause of that? I want you to say it. So like in a word, diabetes, right? Um, so inflammation, oxidation, high blood sugar, this insulin resistance that is just driving inflammation, um, the oxidation from being obese. So the white adipocytes just contributing to this oxidation, um, going on in the body. And, you know, there, I I will say there are, I do a lot of kind of the root cause analysis. So by these, um, you know, really specialized testing. So getting at the root cause, because a lot of times I do find that there is some mold, there's some you know, some heavy metal accumulation that is contributing to the arrhythmia that is contributing to the high blood pressure. Um, of course, some leaky gut that's contributing, but if we dial it all back and look at the diet and the lifestyle, we can really prevent almost all of those things. Yeah. I think mold and heavy metals like to accumulate in stagnant bodies that are inflamed. Exactly. So when you get them hot and you get them moving, and you get them metabolically revved, those things don't stick around. And I, I've lived this, you know, like those things just don't stick around the way that they would when I was stagnant. And, and I've seen it in so many patients as well. So, uh, and the upside is most people's pain tends to go down. That's usually what would help me motivate, you know, we've got to motivate our patients with the thing they come in for. But it really at the end of the day is the same. And I've had patients who have worked with uh, experts in cardiology and the naturopathic realm and come back and said, again, I'm on the same treatment plan they, that you put me on. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, that's, that's all. This, it's diabetes. I love, I love that you shared that. Yeah. Well, and yeah, it, it really all boils down to that. Are we, what are we allowing into your body? Cause everything that you allow into your body is doing something either beneficial or it's counterproductive. So it's like, what is the information that you're allowing into your body? Is it something that's contributing to an inflammatory pathway or a, you know, anti-inflammatory pathway. And, you know, I mean, we know we've talked about like the homeostatic and being a little bit of stress is good, you know, through heat shock proteins and kind of some of these stressors are good, but when it's a toxin or, you know, chronic low grade inflammation and oxidation being allowed in, 
that's just setting yourself up for disaster and cardiovascular disease ultimately and an early death. For sure. I think alcohol plays pretty heavily into this as well. People don't realize sort of some of the, you know, we've been fed the whole have a glass and I bought into it completely for decades, the whole drink wine, it's good for you, it's good for your heart messaging. But we now have studies that have come out in the past, well, they've been sort of trickling out, but conclusively in the past year, that alcohol is a direct causative agent to cancer. So it's like, all of these things just sort of add up. And it's not about Unless you're really bad off, I don't usually tell people to cut everything. It's it's up to the person's desire. I personally just sort of hit a wall in my late 40s where like all of it was too much, you know, and so I had to pick my poison, so to speak. And I used to tolerate those poisons a little better than I do now. And I think that I'm very similar to I, I share this only because I want the average adult to understand that uh, our tolerances go down. I, I can't bounce back from things the way that I used to in my 30s. Definitely not my 20s. But I think that I and you've probably seen this too. It's like people get so far on their bad habits. And then it's like the wheels just seem to f- seemingly out of nowhere fall off the car. But really, it's been happening for a long, long time. Right. Well, and what I also notice as well, it's like what used to be, oh, yeah, I would have, you know, and it could be maybe two drinks a week then it's like, okay, then it becomes more and more normal during the weeknights. And during, and and that's just not a normal progression for things that you're, again, your body has to be detoxifying all the time. So you're having this normal turnover of cells, normal, normal turnover of things that your body's working to get rid of. So the pesticides, the fumes that we're innately in, inhaling, we're constantly having to detoxify something. So if we're ingesting something every single day, day in and day out that we also have to detox and your body does prioritize detoxifying alcohol first. So then you're going to get an accumulation of glyphosate an accumulation of BPA and triclosan and all these other plasticizers, because you're not allowing your body enough time to repair and get rid of, okay, first things first. And now let's work on this additional layer. So we have to allow that, that time and space. Um, and I think that, you know, as, as we all get a year older here and there. Like, I know I I just had a birthday and I did have some champagne on my birthday and it was not, you don't bounce back from that as easily as we used to. It sucks, (laughs) it, it sucks, but it's a lesson learned. And it's like, if we can say, listen to your body, listen to your body in that sense. Do you remember what, I don't know. I don't know. Well, happy birthday, by the way. And I don't know how old you are, but I know you're younger than me. And I, I remember sitting there in my 30s, listening to middle-aged women tell me about how just one day, seemingly out of nowhere, red wine was no longer their friend. And it was a big problem out of nowhere. You know, it was hot flashes and feeling awful. And I would, I would just kind of snicker under my breath quietly and be like, ha, oh, those poor ladies. I can't imagine. Well, then I became that lady and it was terrible. But what happens with a lot of these ladies is they will shift to white wine because it doesn't cause a lot of the same symptoms, right? Tell them the problem with white wine here. Well, it's so much higher in sugar. So yeah, if you're thinking about, okay, any beneficial thing that we were going to get from wine, I think that the goal of that was really resveratrol is my best guess from the peel of the red grape. We're not getting that in white wine. So what we're getting is no resveratrol plus alcohol plus more sugar from the white wine. So we're creating a higher insulin response, higher inflammation, plus the oxidation from the the detox that your body has to undergo. So really it's, 
it's don't make that switch to white wine. If your body is saying we don't want red wine, then just say my body doesn't want wine. And that's like my go-to, right? So like you said, we don't have to tell patients to quit everything because then they would never follow up and they'd be like, okay, well, that's just not going to happen. But the, if I can like make two suggestions to any given patient for pretty much any ailment that they're experiencing, be it, oh, I've got five extra pounds that I want to lose or my blood pressure or my GI tract is off any, I don't care what it is. If you can cut out gluten and alcohol, give it a week. Like that's why I would say, don't take my word for it. Give it a week. See how you feel. Check if you want to, you know, go by your scale, go by your blood pressure cuff, go by your normalcy of your bowel movements. Tell, tell me it doesn't work. It always works. Yeah. Th- those are two really rough things to quit at the same time. I know, easier said than done. <laughs> <laughs> I got my husband off of blood pressure medications and actually completely off of any testosterone replacement and his blood pressure is completely normalized. And it was just through good, you know, good naturopathic living. Like you gotta, you gotta drop the the pearls gently with your significant other. Because again, if you tell somebody to do all the things at once, they flip out and they, the compliance goes away, they get, they disappear. But, um, he slowly but surely came around and now he is teaching others. He's like, you don't want to eat beans because they have lectins and you don't want to eat seed oils because of this. And I hear him on the phone with his family and it's so cute because he gets it, you know, and he understands. And it's that see one, do one, teach one, you know, and my blood pressure went down. I wanted to share this with you. My blood pressure was always normal. Actually, it was always low. Uh, I was always a low like 107 over, you know, 60 something. That was always my blood pressure. And in fact, I have to take salt and other things to try to raise it so I don't get dizzy. But I had been noticing throughout the pandemic that my blood pressure was creeping up, especially my diastolic, my my lower number for the audience listening, which is not good, right? And I want to ask you why that's not good in a second. But since I quit drinking on January 1st, both my numbers have gone down by 20 points. So while I was never high, I mean, you can imagine 120 over 80 something. I mean, that was a little bit high. That was that was um, so that, you know, it wasn't concerning me because I was like, oh, I'm just getting older. My blood pressure is going up naturally. It wasn't that, you guys. It was the alcohol. And when I took the alcohol, and I wasn't even drinking that much. That's the thing. I was barely drinking in, in terms of volume. And so my husband was like, why are the people on Instagram freaking out? You barely drank. And then I just ran into my buddy who owns the winery down the street. And he made a joke about like what a lightweight I was. Like, I don't know how quitting helped you because you could barely drink in the first place. And I'm like, I know, right? But that little trickle of poison was enough. I think it was driving my estrogen. Okay, yeah. Which was causing this low grade inflammation, which we can speak to or not. But why is that lower number creeping up so bad? Yeah. So usually that's fluid accumulation. So that's where it's like, if you're eating at restaurants a lot, so you get a lot more of that processed salt, um, and then alcohol consumption, you, you, you can even notice it like the way you're close to after and, and like after drinking, you have this fluid accumulation and that's where that diastolic number creeps up because you're not, that's, that's usually if you went to, you know, a, a Western like MD and they saw that they'd put you on like, um, like a HCTZ, they put you on a diuretic to release some of that fluid because it's just fluid accumulation. Yep. I was just getting puffy. Yeah. I was Alcohol so puffy. And processed salt is like the top number one reasons of a, a increased diastolic blood pressure. Mm-hmm. And it's the more dangerous. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cause it's that poor heart 
pushing back on that pericardium. <laughs> it yeah, like I it. mean, that's your time for your heart to relax. So it should be able to relax. And if it's only mildly relaxing, then it's, you know, it's not good for any of us. Oh, yeah, that's so telling. And it all adds up so well, true to my, uh, my clinical picture, which was I was just getting so boggy and puffy. And I could not, I could not get on top of it. That was the middle age part that was just shoot me in the foot. And it was it sucked. You're like, you know, puffy under your eyes and around your eyes after again, it's, it's just that fluid accumulation, because your body is having that fluid shift where it's like, you're actually dehydrated, but you're holding on to the fluid. So your cells are dehydrated, but you're puffy, your blood pressure is wonky. Um, so, and it's just all in all bad for the cardiac muscle. If anyone wants to see what I looked like, then they should just go back and look at when I was on your podcast. I don't remember when we recorded that, if it was before or after January, do you remember? I think it was after, I, th- I want to say it was either late January or early February. I was so puffy still. Really? Like my face compared to now. I saw the video the other day and my face was so much rounder and puffy compared to now. And in fact, I got puffier after I quit drinking for about a month or two. I actually got puffier. And I think it was my body trying to regulate and my detoxification systems trying to figure out what the hell was going on. And it took a hot minute, but I saw the video the other day and I was like, oh, this is, this is, you know, it was not good. But you always look beautiful. Oh, thank you. But it was, well, I see it. You know, that's what I, my husband laughs because I'll run around and be like, am I puffy? Am I puffy? And he's like, I don't know what you're talking about. But I, you know, we notice it and the women listening understand what I'm saying. And as we get older, it becomes much more apparent. You go to bed and you wake up and you're like, what the hell happened? But it is that fluid accumulation. And I'm glad to hear that it's improved for myself. But um, I mean, I'm glad to hear what you say about the diastolic. That really is dangerous. And I see a lot of women clinically. And most notably, it was those women who were sitting in that sort of metabolic syndrome land with that high insulin, unbeknownst to them, and that insulin, res- low grade insulin resistance. And it, it this is contributing to a lot of cardiovascular disease as well as according to what you're sharing. Absolutely. And that's where it's like, we really, if you're not already seeing somebody that's like doing the more in-depth testing, you're doing yourself a great disservice because they're, you know, you can do like a total, a normal cholesterol panel and you can do a normal, um, you know, okay, you got your A1C or maybe it's just your fasting blood sugar, but you don't really know what's on if they don't order a fasted insulin, if they don't order, you know, some of these oxidation and inflammation markers, then it could be a total nightmare underlying a otherwise very normal looking, you know, although outdated is all get out lipid panel. Um, but if we're not doing, you know, the, the full in-depth assessment of what's really going on, you just don't know. Right, right. And I don't think most people do know. They're just sort of rocking low-grade metabolic syndrome for years and years and years until it finally manifests into something scary and they end up in your office looking for a specialist and you've got to give them this news that at the end of the day they've got to get their metabolism under check and they probably say like what the hell does that have to do with my heart well yeah it's like they come in and it's like oh yeah my fingers and toes are tingling and I was told that I had my a1c was you know 5.9 or something which having, you know, even been told that it's like, okay, yeah, we've got years of damage to undo, but it's like, had you known this five, 10 years ago that your A1C was creeping up and creeping up and creeping up, then you wouldn't have this nerve damage and you wouldn't have this inflammation. You wouldn't have the endothelial dysfunction, which now you're having not only high blood sugar, but high blood pressure and potentially some, you know, nerve damage and cognitive dysfunction because of everything that you've allowed into your bloodstream 
um, over the years. Yeah. Yeah. It's a slow creep, a slow insidious creep. And I think it's affecting, well, I've never had a patient who was middle-aged who had normal labs. They really don't happen. Um, I mean, just walking off the street, you know, it's like, there's always something because, you know, they might say, okay, well, you know, my, my grandfather died of a heart attack when he was only 45 years old. So they know that they're at some genetic predisposition for it. And they can be, you know, lean and have a otherwise, you know, pretty clean lifestyle. But if there's some insulting factor, um, and, you know, I'll actually bring it back to the whole COVID discussion. I had a patient, the most pristine lifestyle. I mean, he like, this guy's diet was, I was like, you've got to be kidding me. Like I, it was my first appointment with him. So I'm doing this intake and his diet was excellent. Doesn't drink, um, doesn't even drink coffee. Um, just, you know, water had like a Berkey filter even. Um, but got the COVID vaccine and presented the next day for a heart attack. Oh, and so it's like, you don't know what's going on with your cardiovascular system unless you get tested because oftentimes more often than not, the first symptom of cardiovascular disease is a heart attack or sudden death. So do yourself a little bit of, you know, a little bit of justice and say, okay, should I, I, I should just at least know where I stand. Cause even if it's not, you know, this whole, you know, genetic cascade that came to you and now you're trying to, okay, well this happened to my father and my grandfather. So I'm going to eat a, you know, an organic diet. I'm going to do X, Y, and Z. I'm going to exercise. I'm going to not smoke. So you can do all these things, but sometimes you just don't know. Like if you have lipoprotein little a at a really high amount, you have to know because the only treatment for that is to really mitigate other risk factors. So it's just, you know, knowledge is power and we have to have that understanding of the, the baseline of where we're at. What kind of test does a, does someone ask for from their doctor to find out that breakdown of their cholesterol molecules? Well, any, what's frustrating is that anybody, any doctor can run all of these. They just choose not to. So like, um, Cleveland heart lab, um, was absorbed by Sonora quest, which is available nationwide. So Cleveland heart lab. So you can go to your MD and you can do like a full inflammation, a vascular inflammation panel, which I think is very, very important. Um, and again, you can have the lipoprotein NMR. So looking at the particles of the, uh, lipids. So beyond just, you know, LDL, HDL, um, looking at the NMR profile, and then also looking at oxidized LDL, small, dense LDL. So I like to just, I already kind of gave my opinion or my discussion about, um, the oxidized LDL, which is like that rusty cholesterol molecule. Um, and then you think about, um, the size as well. So if it's small and dense, you can picture like a golf ball. Um, and if you think about the inside lining of the blood vessels, again, that kind of endothelial lining, you can think about it as like a meshwork. A golf ball is going to be much more likely to fall into that meshwork than a volleyball. So you don't want things that are small and dense. And when they're small and dense, they're more uh, prone to oxidation. So if you're going to fall into that inside meshwork, that's where you get atherosclerosis and that plaque and the hardening of the arteries, um, ultimately leading to, leading to cardiovascular disease. We want the big puffy ones, like big puffy beach balls. <laughs> exactly. Nice, light, buoyant, puffy beach balls, not hard that like, if you're getting hit with a golf ball, it hurts <laughs> more inflicted injury. If you get hit with a volleyball or beach ball, it's like, eh, that's fine. It bounces back. But yeah, I mean, you can have, um, you know, lab course nor request run these no problem. 
That's really interesting to know because it seems to be, well, I don't, I don't know. This is what I have shared, and I hope I'm right on this, but I feel like a lot of MDs don't run specialty labs because at the end of the day, our license is on the line to diagnose what we find on those labs. And so if we don't truly understand the lab work that we're requesting and we don't know how to manage the patient when those results come back, that's a problem for the physician. So I think to the doctors, the MD's defense, uh, I think a lot of them don't necessarily have the specialty training in these regions. And so therefore, when the patient requests, the doctor says no, and the patient gets mad. And then they, you know, talk about they just talk shit about them all over my Instagram. And I'm like, to the doctor's defense, we, you know, we are in it. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I think that that's the system's fault more than I agree. But you know, so my employer is a cardiologist, he was trained in Western medicine. So he's, you know, out of that same system, but he knew better. He ultimately, after working, you know, in, you know, standard allopathic cardiology for a decade and doing extraordinarily well in that. And he's, you know, a, a genius really, but he wised up and was like, there's more that we could be doing. There's more that we need to know. And so coming from that system, he evolved into becoming a holistic cardiologist. So you know, he and I now are running these things that neither of us were really trained on in medical school, but we're in the business. If you're a doctor, we know that we're in the business of continued education. Like we just have to keep evolving because there is science continually coming out, which is wonderful. Like there's brilliant minds all over the globe that are putting out this information. So it's up to us to stay up to that so that we can do better for our patients. I agree completely. We've got a lot of lazy doctors out there. That is for sure. Well, look, look at the pickle we're in. Clearly, these people are not keeping up with the data because the data is telling us a lot. Speaking of the data, the data is coming out around cardiovascular disease, myocarditis and issues in the cardiovascular realm and the vaccine. I do want to touch on that. We don't have to get too deep, but I wanted to ask you something I get asked a lot. I know the answer, but I want you to say it in that uh, for the audience to understand athletes dropping dead on the field after getting vaccinated. Why are we seeing an uptick in particular in athletes, specifically young ones? What is the mechanism going on there? So that's a good question. And I think that there's like, there's been different opinions on this that I've kind of read up on. Um, But from, from kind of like a, if you think about it in terms of like, so if you look at the spike proteins in a unvaccinated person that had COVID, They've got, you know, maybe 400. If you look at a vaccinated person, like after, you know, their second shot, then that number is much, much higher. So if that's something, something that's inflicting damage in a vascular sense, that amount of spike protein circulating is really going to cause a lot more issues. So it's, you know, thrombosis and it's um, this inflammation and it's occlusion. So it's not you know, like this old man throwing a blood clot that's been accumulating from a plaque, it's this inflammation that's accumulating. So I'll, like, I'll bring it back to that patient I had after um, he had a heart attack. His vessels were so occluded from just inflammation, there was no plaque. <gasps> yeah. So, and he, and I don't like to send for, um, you know, nuclear imaging, but he had already had it done. So I took a look at it and it was, you know, a cross section of his coronary arteries was just that it's occluded from vascular inflammation and it's not a plaque it's not a thrombus 
So that, um, you know, from my, just my clinical perspective and my clinical understanding is just this vascular inflammation is what's occluding. And again, if they're running the field and you have this increased demand for, you know, blood flow and especially to the heart muscle and your heart muscle is being occluded because of the vessels are being occluded, then yeah, what, I mean, you're, you're not going to get very far, unfortunately. Yes. It's a mechanical issue. Mm-hmm. It become, I mean, it's an inflammatory systemic issue that becomes a mechanical issue. Exactly. And I would think too mechanistically that the spike proteins at such high levels circulating at that volume, like they get their booster and then they go do some extreme sport a few days later. And I mean, soccer players are running a marathon every game. That's a massive increase of blood flow through that heart, like you just mentioned, and a massive load of spike proteins, you know, causing inflammation down that whole pathway. Exactly. It's really scary to think about. It's, it's very scary because again, it's just this fragile system that we're so, it is so overburdened by these spike proteins. So yeah, it's, it's incredibly inflammatory and incredibly aggravating to that fragile system. So it just becomes overwhelmed. Somebody sent me a, a picture of a notice at a clinic that they saw. And it was a doctor who does screenings for athletes to get them, you know, like we used to do that as chiropractors, we would do pre-screens for team sports, you know, and this doc won't clear vaccinated people, young uh, children, young people, because of the risk of cardiovascular events. And there is a condition that young athletes get of their heart. If you'll talk about that, that's pretty common anyway. So this might be sort of a uh, you know, like a double whammy in some that we're. Yeah. Yeah. So that's the hokum. So the hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, um, and that's just this enlargement of the cardiac muscle. So the, the muscle is just too large and it's just kind of, um, like, uh, almost tetanic. It just doesn't pump properly. And so that's where you get these athletes, these young athletes just suddenly dropping dead on the field. And then you double dose them with some vaccine that, induces spike protein inflammation. That's crazy that it was so swollen. It was swollen shut. That's just, it was wild. And he did, um, it was a nuclear stress test. And so we, you know, you see it at rest. And so this just again, goes right into that of these athletes. So this guy on, you know, not on a treadmill versus on a treadmill and on a treadmill, his vessels were completely occluded. How terrifying. And this is real, you guys, and not to keep hammering this one, but I was taught this by my mentor, Dr. Rick Marinelli, that you just don't exercise when you have a viral infection and you don't exercise for a while after. So I was really careful. I had, I got hit pretty hard by COVID and I mean, not like super hard, but it was not the most fun. And it was definitely worse than uh, some flus I've had. And I really took it easy coming back. I mean, it was baby steps coming back to my workouts. My nervous system was a little shot, so I wasn't even able to go back anyway, as hard as I wanted to, but I was lifting little weights and I was being very careful. I was not going upside down. I have a yoga hammock that I like to flip upside down on and traction my spine. I was not going upside down because I didn't want to put any stress on the vessels of my brain because I knew, and I've heard some naturopathic doctors, some of our colleagues say, keep your patients on a blood thinner for an entire year following their bout with COVID and not a pharmaceutical blood thinner necessarily, but some of our more tried and true naturopathic, uh, remedies like I'll let you share some I, I like to reach for like some of the proteolytic enzymes I've had success with a lot of those um and like you know I had a 
a young man, a very young man, I think he was only like 20 and he was um, in the military and he had a really bad bout with COVID and same thing. He was getting ready to go back. You know, he was on leave and was getting ready to go back just, just after I saw him. And so I gave him just that. Cause I'm like, they're, they, they don't allow you time to rest and recuperate from this. And he was having, you know, severe shortness of breath. Um, and so, yeah, I, I gave him some of the proteolytic enzymes, some support for his, um, you know, inflammation as a whole systemically. Um, and then things that are going to help him kind of, you know, recuperate and get rid of some of these. Um, yeah. So the proteolytics to kind of keep the thrombus at bay um, and the inflammation at bay um, and then support for the um, endothelium as well. I think this is a good place for sauna because it gives you the ability to sort of exercise, you know, quote unquote, exercise your vessels without actually physically exercising. Can you talk about that and what the benefits of sauna might be? Yeah, I um, actually spoke with, um, you know, I don't know if you know, um, sunlight and saunas. I spoke with the CEO just recently and we were having an at length discussion about this because it was basically it's cardiovascular exercise while at rest. So especially while you're like kind of getting back on the horse and getting, gaining back, um, you know, everything you need to be able to exercise. And cause you know, you you're, you know, swinging around heavy weights and everything. So you can't just go zero to hundred. So you kind of got an easier inch away there. Um, so sauna is a great way to really, you know, do the, the cardiovascular component of exercise, detoxifying some of these components, um, of the illness, um, or the vaccine, whichever it is, that's the offending agent. Um, but really a great way to kind of get back on the horse. Yeah. I agree. Sauna was my saving grace through my sickness and recovery after like I can't, I can't give it enough accolades. And sunlightens the sauna I have and that is the the sauna I promote. So I will share my link in the bio you guys listening because sunlighten is like, great company, great customers, good sauna. I just like cooking in my box to get myself <laughs> anytime anything's going wrong in my life, even if it's emotional, I'm like, I'm gonna go I might cry in there. I might, you know, who knows? I might have a meltdown for a minute, but I cook myself until it's over. <laughs> and then I'm good. Oh, <laughs> uh, well, Lauren, I love you. And I am so happy to talk to you and get your insight on this. It, it really, you know, a lot of my followers listen to the show regularly. And I hope that this just sort of double down, you know, doubles down on a lot of what I have been talking about and to have you back it up with the cardiovascular component, because it's such a big piece. And you mentioned a few times, I'd like to hear your thoughts on this. Uh, and obviously, let the audience know where they can find you. But what do you say to people who say, well, this is in my, this is in my family, this is my fate, this is, you know, there's, there's heart attacks, and there's all these things, and it's just genetic. What do you say to that? I absolutely not. I mean, I think that there's a certain set of genetic code that we inherit, certainly, and that's undeniable. But how you allow your lifestyle and your existence to impact that is really how you're going to figure out your outcome. So that's why it's so important to do the test. Because again, I'll, I'll, I'll bring it back to lipoprotein little a, I think is the best way to bring this into what I do. Because it's a really, it's a large risk factor for stroke and heart attack is having lipoprotein little a very, very genetically linked. If your father or grandfather had lipoprotein little a, then you're probably going to inherit that as well. That does not mean you're going to have a heart attack or stroke. It means that you're at a higher risk. So therefore we mitigate other risk factors. And, you know, there's not a whole lot that we can do to kind of tip the scale and bringing, um, 
lipoprotein little laid down, you know, some niacin. There are some things we can really throw the book at it, but that really only does so much. So we have to bring down other risk factors so that you don't have a heart attack or stroke. Um, so your, your, you know, your story is in your hands and we just have to figure out where you're at and, um, you know, take the bull by the horns. I love it. That is a perfect way to close. Let the audience know about your podcast and your Instagram and all the places to find you. So listeners can find me on the Healthy Heart Show, which is our podcast. So myself and Dr. Jack Wolfson, again, he's a cardiologist. Um, I am again in Phoenix at Natural Heart Doctor. So I'm on Instagram at Natural Heart Doctor and at Dr. Latanza. That's Dr. Latanza. Um, our website, naturalheartdoctor.com. Um, super, super happy to be here. I love, I am super admirable of all of your work, Dr. Tina, and just saying it like it is and happy to contribute to that cause. So thank you so much for having me here. Yes. Thank you. And thank you for always supporting me. It, it honestly means the world. So you're leader down here in AZ. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Thanks. Thanks for listening to the Dr. Tina show. Please be sure to follow me on Instagram at Dr. Tina, that's D-R-T-Y-N-A and Dr. Tina 2.0, as well as visit my website at drtina.com. This is a Resonant Media production produced by Drake Peterson and mixed by Chris McCone. The theme song is by John the Guilt. As always, you can email the show at podcast at drtina.com. And if you like this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. See you next week. This podcast is for general informational purposes only. It does not constitute the practices of medicine, nursing, or other professional healthcare services, including the giving of medical advice. I am a doctor, but I am not your doctor. No doctor-patient relationship is formed. The use of this information and the materials linked to this podcast is at the user's own risk. The content on this podcast is intended not to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Users should not disregard or delay in obtaining medical advice from any medical condition they have, and they should seek the assistance of their healthcare professionals for any such conditions.